Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Mischief Makers, your one-stop shop for all things mischief. Join your host, Dave Hearn, as he finds out what makes mischief, well, mischief. Um, is there anything I don't want you to talk about? Ironically, we are recording now, so I'm about to see what I don't want you to talk about whilst oh, yeah. we're recording. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was perfect actually. timing. It was. Um, I actually don't know what. I, I don't think, if there's anything, I suppose it's actually less me that doesn't want to talk about anything. It's more just like if there's anything you don't want to talk about, just be like, oh no, we, we, we don't need to talk about that. Oh no, it's all fair game. All fair game. Excellent. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, that was the intro. Hello. Um, welcome to another episode of Mischief Makers with me, Dave Hand. Today, you may have heard the smooth tones of Adam Megiddo. Uh, hello, Adam. Hello there. We're just talking about what we are allowed to talk about and what we're not allowed to talk about. And it turns out nothing is off the table. Yeah. Which is, good. Uh, this makes it sound like a sort of a hard-hitting kind of... Sky yeah, this is going to be a transgressive piece of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of uh, really searching questions. It's sort of mm. the um, Oprah Winfrey meets Adam Megiddo, nothing's off the table interview. <laughs> um, Let's do it. So those of you that don't know uh, Adam, probably most of you do, but Adam is a, a director, teacher, writer, mischief maker, uh, among many, many other things. And you've also created um, a lot of shows, which we're... Uh, we'll get into that a bit later on. Um, but first off, uh, let's just get to know you a little bit. And why don't you tell us just a bit about um, where you grew up and your kind of pathway into theatre and into the arts and ultimately kind of how you came to work with Mischief? Sure. Uh, well, I've always come from a theatre background. Like my parents were both in theatre. They were both dancers and choreographers. And um, my father worked with a lot of very famous choreographers in the 60s, 50s, 60s and then became a teacher in the 70s. So he used to work with people like uh, Martha Graham and Alvin Ailey and Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse. And then my mother um, was an actor from being very young, an actor and a dancer. And she was in the original London production of West Side Story in oh, wow. 1960, so, uh, 61, maybe? Something I didn't like that. know that. Yeah, she played the role of anybody. So she was in the first ever London West Side Story. Cool. So. I have this theatre, I have a theatre background. So theatre was always a thing in my house and dance was always a thing. Dance was a big deal. Like, you know, you couldn't watch TV without um, my dad reaching for a videotape to record whatever dance was going to come up on a game show or on a variety show or a you know, Saturday night entertainment show. There was always going to be some dancers there and he was constantly just recording dance. and wow. dance. That's quite a um, sort of catalogue of dance. Strangely, it, was it strangely obsessive or was it quite just sort of a thing that he liked to do? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was. I don't know if it was obsessive. It was just his, it was his passion. Dance yeah. was, was absolutely their passion. Um, so I, I mean, I never got into dance. I love dance. Um, I love watching dance and I really appreciate dance. I don't really feel much urge to dance myself mm. um, and don't 
consider myself to have any particular aptitude for it but I do really appreciate it and watching it and I do love it and I will sometimes just you know go to YouTube and just check out choreographers and what what, what kind of work they're up to wow and so it's how does one go from um well, well I suppose actually a better question is was there any kind of um did you feel any pressure from your parents to kind of go into the arts or specifically go into dance or was it something you just gravitated towards anyway no, it was the opposite. And it was um, my father and I, who had a, we had a very troubled relationship all our life. And he was a very, very difficult man. Uh, he was completely against me going into the arts. He just had it in his head that I should be a scientist. I don't know why. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just decided my son will be a scientist. Wow. Um, even though I have very little aptitude for science. Um, I've got a great, again, I, I've got a passion for science. Like, I love reading about science. Although the minute I've read the book, I can't remember a single detail of what I've just read. But I'm, I'm fascinated in, like, physics, quantum physics and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, mm. no, I was never going to be a scientist. And I was very lost. I was very, I was very lonely as a child, and I was very um, damaged as a child. And I found, when I was kind of 16, I think, 15, 16, I started getting into acting at school. And suddenly I felt here was a place where I could express myself and people would suddenly notice me because I was sort of very shy and very introverted, painfully introverted. I still am very introverted and shy, mm. but um, it was really intense when I was a teenager. And suddenly I was, you know, this was like um, kind of coming alive or being reborn, really. And so I absolutely loved it. And I just got into it and it was like, um, this is what I want to do. And when I said to my family that... Um, I was going to do this. My father burst, a very dramatic man, burst into tears at the table and basically refused to talk to me for about two years. Wow. Yeah, because you were going into, into the arts. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, we could speculate all day about why, but there's probably no point. It was just for whatever reasons, it, he was just devastated. I think he had this belief. He was a very strange man, <laughs> very strange man. And I think he believed that, uh, it was kind of part of this great curse that he lived under, you know, that his life was cursed. He really did believe that. Oh, wow. And um, as well, a result, like, a, like a real curse. Yeah, or I a think sort so. of metaphorical like a real, curse. I think a real curse. I think he really believed he had been cursed. Oh, wow. And everything was a manifestation of it. So if, you know, when I announced I'm going to be an actor, it was like, you see, I'm cursed. <laughs> Like, sure. Yeah. He was a genuine solipsist, which is um, an extraordinary word. And for anyone who hasn't encountered a solipsist, the solipsist doesn't believe that anyone else really exists. They are the center of the universe. Oh wow! So it's like an extreme form of narcissism. So what he uh, believed that he he was the center of the. I'm, we, we have to investigate this. So he. This is why I said, <laughs> "Is there anything you don't want to talk about, Dave?" No. <laughs> this is why you said, "No." Is there anything you don't want to talk about, Adam? This is fascinating. What's a? Oh, sorry, I've lost it. Solipsist. Solipsist. Solipsism. Yeah. It sounds like a sort of mollusk, a sort of like deep sea creature. Yeah, yeah so he, that's he maybe believed, a good way to imagine it. He believed that other the that other people didn't exist. Yes, he actually told me and my sister growing up that we didn't exist. Wow, how that old were you? We were when just he told basically you figments of his imagination. <laughs> Ah, uh, 10 or 11. Wow. That's yeah, quite it's fascinating. Not thing, it's not a thing to tell kids. It's just not a thing to, to believe in. No. It's, it's, but then, it's a pretty monstrous belief, to be honest. So in a way, like, you as children, did you believe that you you were sort of there by his by his allowance? No, I never believed that. But, you know, yeah. these were the sorts of things that would happen a lot in my childhood that were very damaging um, because you were around this sort of uh, mm. behaviour all the time. Quite sort of eccentric... I don't know, is it, does eccentric disarm it too much, do you think? Yeah, I think it, there, there's a danger in, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think if you, you can justify a lot of bad behaviour by calling it eccentric, I think. But I think it explains why I suddenly kind of felt this awakening when I discovered theatre. It's like, oh my God, I can feel an identity. Mm. Albeit, you know, falsely, um, as is often the case with actors. Yeah. It's a fabrication. However, it, it felt like something good to go with, and suddenly... I was uh, expressing myself and I was um, noticed. So it was, I sort of, and I found something I was passionate about and had a, and a flair for. So I really yeah. persisted with it. 
so in this this idea of kind of being noticed i suppose is that do you think that extends from did you feel that you were kind of in your father's shadow in a way and that actually this was a way of stepping out of it um i don't know about being in his shadow because um i think i tried to extricate myself from his influence a lot earlier in life Mm. uh, because i realized it was not a safe environment to be in Mm. but um it was more just falling in love with something. It was just like having a passion for something and, and something that spoke to me about a sense of self that felt good. And that was where it really all started. And I think most actors start with that kind of thing from mm. whatever level of often dysfunction. And I think at some point later in life as an actor or someone in the arts, you have to decide, hang on, am I still doing this for the same reasons as to, you know, as to why I started it? Sure. Yeah. Like, because um, I definitely started when, <clears throat> yeah, I think I felt a bit lost, like I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember just thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I quite like doing GCSE drama. I'll give that a so go. So you're about the same sort of age, like 15, 16? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I kind of did my first play, I guess, at like 17. Um, and I don't know, I think, I, think, I, I think I enjoyed it. But I was just quite like, it was sort of that I couldn't find anything else that I liked. And so I think there was something, I think it's the same, actually, I'm the same as you, like, I got to be actually even as part of a team, but also kind of the centre um, to be noticed and to just kind of have, I guess, it felt like a bit of control over those moments when you're performing. Right, um, yes. And also what nice. you just said about that balance between the ego and the, you know, the individual and the group is really important. Mm. A strong sense of self, but also a strong sense of community. So do you think you're still doing it now for the same reasons that you started doing it? No, I don't think so. Um, I think I do it now because I genuinely love the craft. Like I, I really, I just love the the process of writing and creating things. I like the group dynamic of working on a project together. I like uh, seeing an idea through from its spark right through to its fruition mm. and its final sharing with an audience. I love the dynamic of actor and audience or performers and audience. I love that. Absolutely find it thrilling and exciting. Um, so I, I find, yeah, it's, it's, I hope it's an, it's a lot less about myself and finding identity and ego reward, but actually in many ways it's, it can be very ego bruising mm. rather than rewarding. Um, and I think I just constantly trying to get my ego out of the work and trying to just facilitate the work and be a channel for the work. And the work is what I love. Uh, there's a social aspect to it that I love as well. You know, working with people is exciting. Collaboration with the right group is exciting. Uh, an yeah. improv company that all thrive off each other is exciting. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think um, it's really interesting that that uh, sort of part about ego, actually, because it is quite... Um, I, I personally found that during Magic quite a lot because it is quite... Um, magic goes wrong because it's quite an isolating show i don't know how it felt as a director i imagine it was we'll, we'll, we'll get onto magic a bit later actually but mm-hmm. i think as a um as a performer it's quite isolating because you are part of a team but you're often doing routines on your own um yeah and so it it's was more a weird... like a kind of concert show where you have yeah. this act and then this act it's a variety show really with a through line with a narrative through line yeah and i think it's yeah it's really strange to kind of um you I think it happens at drama school as well when you you kind of go oh well I'm I'm the shit one or like that person is the funny one or like this routine is the serious one do you know what I mean and so you So you mean of... trying to find your sense of self in where you sat in that particular lineup. Yeah and I think as well like everybody because we're devising the show with you like every all of the individual acts kind of develop at different rates and so mm. I remember really early on making the decision to try and um, I think actually I didn't recognize it at the time, but now that you've said it, I go, I think what I was trying to do is actually remove my ego from it and go, I'm just going to do the best that I can until Adam tells me to do something differently. <laughs> and then, and then I'll just do that and not, like... I, I don't think that's a bad way to approach anything. Uh, yeah. I'll do the best that I can until someone tells me differently. Yeah. And then like, we'll hope that, and then also as well, I sort of discovered this thing where I was like, and then if I go on and it's really bad. That's not my problem because I'm trying. That's Adam's problem. So, yeah. like, Adam can come in and solve it. I should also say that you were the director of that show, not just like someone 
that like approved or disapproved of therapist. my performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so- yeah. I mean, also you have the the difficulty in the in the kind of work that you do as mischief and the way in which you work, which is you're constantly changing things. Mm. So you could have a sense of identity in that show, and then literally during previews, someone might come to you and say, "Actually, it's all changed. It's now this." Oh, okay. Yeah. How does that sort of? Um, actually, let me just let me just see my uh, my questions I've got here because we could go into yeah. Actually, let's 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 dive into that actually. So we we've segued. We've segued, but it's okay because we can I can bring us back around. Actually, no, let's not segue. Let me segue you back. So you were you were an, you were an actor. You sort of discovered acting, and then you um, you were performing and enjoying it, and presumably that kind of gathered momentum. Did you then go through kind of training, go to like a drama school or join a yes. theatre company? Yes. Uh, so actually, when I left school, I st- I took a year out and I studied mime, mask, and commedia dell'arte with an amazing woman called Claude Chagrin at the French Institute, and that was. Oh, just the most wonderful, mind-expanding, joyous year. And I was so full of the love of the, the arts and exploration and collaboration and thought, this is exciting. And this was at the end of the 80s. So physical theatre was a big thing. Like, mime wasn't just like a weird thing that happened, you know, in a leotard with white gloves on, which it had been previously. Mime was suddenly this thing that was on mainstream theatres and Rowan Atkinson was doing it and... Uh, it was a, a theatre de complicite all, all over the and Burkhoff all over the eighties, and suddenly physical theatre was a thing. So mm. it felt like being part of a great movement, and it was very exciting. And the work was thrilling and developmental and socially connected. And then I went to Birmingham University, and it was just miserable. It was utterly miserable, really a shoddy, because it wasn't really training to be someone in the arts. It was caught somewhere between an artistic training and a university degree. Right. And I didn't like it at all. And felt, thought of leaving in my first year and wish I had left or, um, or, or really should have, but I sort of stayed because I thought, I've done a year, I've got two more to go, let's get the degree. A degree that I've never used. <laughs> I can't even remember what, really what, I, what it was or what I got. I don't even know the full title of the degree that I have. Um, and then I thought, right, well, I'll go and do a one-year postgrad course. So I was excited about doing that, and I went to Weber Douglas, and that was worse. That was a, oh, wow. that was disastrous. Um, there were some really shoddy teachers at Weber Douglas, and some awful tuition, and um, it was a dreadful, miserable, soul destroying year in which I was taught things that took me six years to unlearn. Really oh, terrible wow. education. Is there anything and, in particular that stands out? <laughs> well, there were a lot of uh, a few of us who knew each other went. And we were in the same year group. So there was, a, there was a group of four of us who knew each other. And we all went with great hope and excitement that we were going to get involved in a proper actor training. Mm. And very quickly we realised, oh my God, this is really disappointing. And I think we were quite vocal about it. So, But of course, rather than in any way listening to the argument, the school tried to just squash us. Um, right. uh, and people were really quite unpleasant to us. And I think we were quite unpleasant back. And we must have come in as a bunch of conceited young men and women um, looking like a bunch of upstarts. But, you know, I look back at it and the truth is we were right. And the training in the main, there were, look, don't get me wrong, there were a couple of very good teachers there. But in the main, the training was really stayed and was not moving with the times and did nothing to develop the individual. And just was a bit like a factory line of this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it. And there was no sense of actually how to engage with that work. It was just being told what to do. So I was thrilled to get out and I was thrilled when the school closed down. I thought it was a disaster. <laughs> and so do you think like you have, um, now that you're uh, a teacher, do you think you would have more sympathy for, yeah, some, uh, if some younger students came in and was, was saying to you that maybe your training was outdated? Huh. You... My God, I'd be shocked and listen. I would listen so carefully to everything they had to say, and I would like be asking them so many questions and say why, what's happened, where has that gone wrong. I would be so interested, although I'd be hurt, I'd imagine, but I mm. would be really interested in the conversation. Yeah, it is a that's... conversation. Teaching is a conversation. I've been teaching for thirty years, and it's a conversation. It's like when I, I wrote a book on improv, and I thought, oh, actually, this will be easy to write this book because. 
I know what I do. I'll just repeat what I do in class. It'll just be like writing down what I do in the classes over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because the book isn't a conversation. The class is a conversation. Teaching is. Book writing and of that particular kind isn't. Improper yeah, I suppose it's more... Um... Available in all good bookshops now. <laughs> we'll do... Uh, we'll, we'll get a little, like, uh, log line at the end. No, I'll pitch that. repeatedly throughout so that... Oh, very good. Just at, like, opportunity. People might not be listening at the end. I might have already put people off, Dave. Oh, that's true. So you've got to yeah. get the book sales in when you can. Just, like, drop them in each new section. Improv Beyond Rules, published by Nick Home. Uh-huh. Beyond, beyond Rules. Um, <laughs> and so is that kind of why... Do you think that... Um, the teaching or the, the lack of that you got at Weber Douglas was what kind of pushed you into wanting to become a teacher yourself? No, I got into teaching from the age of 18 because I, I thought it was an environment where I could try out all the things that I wanted to do. And I was just so excited to share an idea that had been shared with me, with other people. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time in the early days I was teaching, just passing on information. But I think I was quite good at getting my head around the theory and the practice quite quickly and being able to pass that on. But it was much later in life when I realized a lot more about the processes of being a teacher and that teaching is really fundamentally about um, uh, revealing or encouraging someone else's development, you know, it's sort of unlocking really you don't need to be the person who knows the most in the room. I've always been thrilled when I've had a group of students where I, I get these incredibly bright students who are clearly more knowledgeable about certain areas than me. It's like, okay, great. How am I going to teach this person? Well, I'm, it, it doesn't mean that I have to know more than them, but it does mean that I have to facilitate their learning. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, actually, because I think that was actually one of the things that I personally hated about um, kind of standard education in the world mm -hmm. is that you kind of go into a room and somebody who has like a degree in the subject that you're learning talks to you for an hour and a half a day and writes up on a board um you kind of copy everything down and you don't um i don't know you sort of you don't learn you just remember things and then there's no real way to kind of apply it in in any kind of practical sense and absolutely think, like, yeah learning yeah, that, well, Sorry, that's the, no, I think that well, yeah, what you're saying is that actually you're kind of going, oh, you're, you're sort of teaching someone to, to develop their skill and to develop how they want to develop, which I guess is kind of easier to do in the arts. But it, it sort of means that, yeah, you can treat everyone as an individual and not as a, like you said, like a kind of factory line. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is no one definitive way of doing anything in the arts. You know, the, the concept that you just, this is the way to do it is, is madness. And one of the things you learn as you get out, and, and you must have learned this by now, Dave, is that no one really knows what they're doing. Oh, yeah. It's all, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And and everyone is sort of stumbling around trying to figure stuff out. And then occasionally you meet these people who have an exceptional understanding of theatre or theatre dynamics or production or, you know, technical skills. And they are to be valued. Mm. And then what you do is you stick with them and you ally yourselves with them and you learn from them. Um and and the people who know the least tend to be the people who shout the most. That's very true. I think, um, yeah, because they've sort of either got something to prove or they've at that, at that stage of kind of going, oh, I, I don't quite know how to remove myself, my ego from the the value of the production. Um, mm. And so, and it's hard. I, I think I've been, I'm still going through that process now of, particularly within Mischief and, you know, because we've known each other for such a long time it's quite easy to um, become quite hot or just to get a bit pissed off because you're so mm -hmm. familiar with someone. And I find myself in the room now going, just having that little gateway of going, hold on, am I, am I, am I pissed off? Cause Hen isn't accepting my idea. Mm -hmm. um, am I actually angry at him or am I just like pissed off that someone has just said no and actually, I just need to kind of think about it. Do I actually believe that my joke or my idea is genuinely better for this moment or this production? Or am yeah. I actually just annoyed because someone's just said no? And like, it's that kind of thing of going, oh, if I can, if I can intellectualize it and rationalize it and go, oh, no, no, I actually do really believe in this moment and I'm going to, I'm going to fight for it then you mm. can respond in a, in a more kind of palatable way and you don't start an argument because you kind of go, oh, here's, here's my reasoning behind it. But if you're just like, well, hang on, then you, you kick off and you 
then you feel stupid because you're like, oh, I've just reacted because my pride was hurt. And it's a really difficult yeah, totally, thing to learn. Oh, I very much understand that. And you have that, you know, I think everyone in mischief theatre feels that at different times. It's like mm. you're a collective, a very strong collective. And you're always questioning, well, what's my place within this collective? Mm. You know, that's, it's, it's a very difficult um, balance to strike sometimes. Yeah, I think it, it does become a challenge actually within the group. And um, it's something we've talked about quite a lot, which is why I think we've kind of kept going. We've had some, you know, on the whole, I'd say, you know, 90, 99% of the time we're having a great time, but it's that 1% where you got to have a really uncomfortable conversation with a really good yes. friend of yours. And without kind of going through those, you 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 just create a group of, if, yeah, if you don't do that, you just create a group of people who were mates once and now are just stuck together. But actually yeah. now we're, constantly evolving it's not just working on a long-term relationship it's that thing of you're just constantly evolving your relationship with that person because i mean we're what like i'm 32 now and i met henry lewis when i was 20 19 mm -hmm. and so that was when i would have first met you actually i'd have been 19 20 and yeah. like yeah i feel like i'm a very different person now than i was then and so right. to try and apply the same relationship that I do to like you or to Hen that I did when I was 19 would, would be silliness. All relationships take work, all of them. It's just mm. when it comes to friendships, we're used to, it, it looks like it's the easiest and the least work is being done. Mm. You know, we take, we, we coast a lot more in friendships, I think, but um, all relationships take work. And, and what you said there, I think is really interesting that it's, there's the 1% of when you've got to have a difficult conversation. It's how you do that that mm. is the real measure of, of a company and a group of people. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I've had some of those awkward conversations with you guys in the past as well. It's like, I really have to say this, and you really have to say this to me, and we have to just say it. Mm. And then it's difficult. Um, and my belief is always, well, I'd rather have that conversation, and then we can move forwards. And I've always been, uh, I've always tried very much to say, okay, this is a bit awkward, but let's say it and do it and then we yeah. um, then we can move forward well i think that's a testament as well because we've worked uh and and by we i mean me and you and mischief and you have, have worked on more than one project together and i think that only comes from you know if we you know do one project and it's a bit awkward or it's a bit difficult and you go well actually it's this this and this and we go well actually it's this this and this the worst thing that can happen from that is that we both go oh, okay, we just want different things from this relationship, so let's not do another project together. Or we both go, great, yeah, we can adapt and compromise and mould and create another great show together. And yeah, like that absolutely. only comes from that sort of bravery to kind of step forward and, and yeah, and just say those, it's like that difficult 1% and just engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't let, don't disengage from the 1% and ruin the 99. Yeah, there you go. That's the... That's today's that's today's, today's line, line. Um, might be another time for a book plug just after that i think yeah it's called improv beyond rules Pr a practical guide to narrative improvisation by adam megiddo very good doesn't Probably. discuss that 99 to 1 ratio at all, but <laughs> you'll get other things out of it i hope many other things um so you you are kind of um i think some people might know this actually but you are the essentially one of the big reasons that mischief exists um because of the training that we had with you at Lambda on the foundation course um, with myself, Henry Lewis, Harry Kershaw, Mike Bodie, Josh Elliott, I think were all on. Well, yes, pretty much everyone at Mischief I've taught at some point mm. at Lambda, um, either at the foundation course or on the three-year training. So there was a shared love of improv. And I was kind of discovering improv as well around the same time that I think you were. So it's, it's not like I spent 20 years doing improv and then taught you all improv. It was more like uh, I had recently discovered improv, was bringing it into tuition, was bringing it into Lambda, and was trying to develop it as a subject that we could look at. I was excited by the possibility of what actors can get out of it and what we could do with it. And it was really thrilling to share all of that with, with all of you. And yeah, so what was your kind of experience of, because um, of, you were the head of the foundation course, right, when I was there? Yeah, I, used, I started by kind of visiting Lambda, you know, in my early 30s, when I didn't really know what I was doing and I was kind of wandering around as a director, but not really directing and sort of disenchanted with theatre a lot and wasn't doing what I thought I wanted to do. I'd stopped being an actor. I was very confused. Um, 
And then I, I started, you know, just to make ends meet. It's like you, you do the rounds of like, oh, can I direct something here at a drama school? And I did some directing at Lambda and I really loved being at Lambda. I loved the environment and I loved the students. Mm. And I started working more. And then I just started directing a lot for the foundation course. And a couple of years later, um, they said, do you want to run the course? Because the guys running the course is moving up to um, vice principal. Do you want to run the course and they and they said look we know you do other things outside the school it occurs to us that you can kind of do both and you could run the course because it's two terms not three terms so you could kind of do seven months eight months of the year with us and then you can do your other projects the other time and I thought actually I'd love to do that and I think I did it for nine years and I really loved it I loved running the foundation course I, I have very very happy memories um, of working on that course and it was, it was very tough at times, but I really loved it. And then I sort of moved back into, okay, I need to do more professional theatre now and sort of tip the balance the other way. Yeah, because I seem to remember, I mean, the foundation course was my first experience of, of drama school. Um, and I think I, I very, very quickly kind of became quite infatuated with Lambda and the environment that was created there. And I think, um, yeah, I really remember that course fondly. And I said, yeah, I remember you particularly seem to uh, it really enjoy teaching and yeah, loving to us. And and uh, yeah, I, I think now I'm sort of looking at it retrospectively that the yeah, the classes, particularly the improv classes anyway, did feel a bit more like a conversation and did feel a bit more like, OK, well, here's something that I'm going to ask you guys to do. And then, you know, how does that feel? What what, what are you getting out of this? And actually it kind of gave us permission to sometimes be a bit like, well, I don't really know what I got out of that, to be honest. Yeah, and right. Like, you'd just be like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, because it's not about answers. It's more about questions than answers. It's a questioning process, isn't it? It's like, what is mm. this? What is that? How do I feel when I do this? Why am I behaving like this? And you, you throw up all the questions and you live with these questions for a while. I mean, sometimes, of course, you get definitive points of technique. Of course, things like technique, you need to learn. Um, mm. There are principles that you need to understand so that you can apply them for the rest of your life. Uh, but most of the time, it's it's a process of questioning. And you can sit with those questions for years and the answers, or rather the, the inquiry, changes as you get older. So it's, it's not like you've answered the questions emphatically and definitively. You keep asking yourself that question to keep yourself developing as an artist. Yeah, I think there's an obsession, particularly I had this, and I know a lot of um, younger students, uh, particularly when I went to Rose Bruford, you are looking for that answer because you're looking for something that is, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't evolve, it's definitive. This is how you do it. This is how I become a good actor. This is how I become a good improviser or a good comedian or a good singer or a good dancer. And I yeah. think it's really hard idea to bend your head around of just being like, oh no, you're just going to constantly develop. And like, particularly if you're, yeah, if you're, if you go into drama school at the age of 19, by the time you're 45, your casting is going to have changed. And so your approach to things is going to be completely different. And I think mm. that's the most frustrating thing. I think as a student is that you're trying to find an answer, but actually at Lambda, I remember feeling a bit more like, oh, it's okay if I don't have one. Do you know what I mean? That's, uh, I'm so delighted to hear that, Dave. I really am, because I think that is part of what Lambda is all about as well, is it's not trying to stamp you as a kind of factory product. Mm. It's, a, it's encouraging you to be part of an ensemble that is socially minded and full of inquiry. Yeah, it's that kind of inquisitive thing. And I think, yeah, that's actually why I'm, ultimately, I'm, I'm really glad I did the three years at Rose Bruford, because I thought I definitely needed, like, military style acting training where it was like here's the rules here's this learn this do this and my first year at Bruford I think I had the opposite experience that you had at Webb Douglas where I was like I was there kind of and Birmingham slightly as well because I was kind of going oh, I don't want to be here this isn't where I want to be this isn't good for me and mm -hmm. then literally three four months in I met the best friends of my life and just mm. completely fell in love with the place and That's it wasn't great. until I left after three years where I was like, oh, yeah, that was exactly the place I needed to go because... Oh, that's good, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah, it wasn't like the the kind of big central London drama school. It was a little bit further out. We had a bit more space. They were a bit more um, 
a bit kind of less well known and, and kind of growing a bit more. And I was like, oh, yeah, I actually had a really, really good time there. And it's not just just about the training, you know, because it's so easy to get wrapped up in that, I think, of just kind of going, well, this is my life now. I have to devote my entire life to being an actor. And you mm. forget that there's there's other stuff outside the classroom and off stage. And you go, oh, yeah, the other stuff is really important as well. Totally. That's really fantastic to hear. I'm glad you had such a good time there. Yeah, it was great. And it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, as soon as you do drama school, you're like, oh, I wish I could do it again because I could do it better <laughs> this time. I know what I'm doing now. Just jumping back to that point you made, in fact, about how um, people want to get the answer when you're at drama school. Of course it's very easy to forget when you're at drama school that you're in training because mm. your mind is constantly leaping forwards to, am I going to make it? Am I going to have a successful theater or TV or film career? Mm. Um, as we're constantly told the statistics about how many actors are out of work. So it's very difficult to just relax and engage with process because you want a definitive answer that is going to result in the right agent, the right casting directors and the right jobs so that you, you launch. Yeah. But that, that doesn't happen to anyone who has the right answers. That just happens to the 0.01% of people who have become fortuitous. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like um, you are aware that it's a bit of a, a roll of the dice. And I think I've, my friend is teaching currently at Bruford actually, and he, he was saying um, he's kind of going through a new process because he, he's like, I feel like I need to give these kids the answer. Like, because they're going to come out and different years are going to, you know, different agents are going to be looking for different types of people or different people are going to be popular. Different things are going to be in vogue. You know, some, mm. sometimes it's going to be TV. Sometimes it's going to be stage or radio or whatever. And he was like, I'm, I'm trying to like equip them, but also I'm trying to like guide them towards the right answer. And eventually I remember speaking to him. He was really open about it. And he was like, I've just realized after like six weeks of stressing myself out, that actually I just need to, help them become better actors and they have to figure out the rest themselves which is must be a really strange place to get to as a teacher because you slightly take responsibility but you also absolve yourself of it because there's only so much you can do i think the question of what is your responsibility as a teacher is an interesting one mm. um because inevitably it's not just the professional care there's a degree of pastoral care as well you're involved in the lives of young people uh, yeah. at very important stages of their life. And it's, it's, it's a privilege, actually. I've always considered it a privilege. Yeah, I think it's, it is, it's strange, isn't it? Because you sort of, um, when you're in it, you don't really think of yourself as a young person. Do you know what I mean? No, like of course you're... not. In fact, you think you're, you're at your oldest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're most wise. And yeah. then you sort of, as you get older, you sort of relax. I'm just so much more relaxed now, I think, yeah. than I was yeah. when I was 19. But actually, the guy, um, there was a really interesting thing. He was When he was teaching Bruford, he said, like, because he was talking about all the COVID restrictions and stuff. And he was like, oh, man, these kids came in and they're, they're really, they're just scared. And then all of this, like, COVID stuff happens and they can't go anywhere near each other. And, like, yeah. they, they, just, they just don't know what they're doing. And then he said some of the, I think it was the second year students or something, was um, he was just like, but they just don't care. They don't care about COVID. They're all just getting drunk. They're all fucking each other. They're all just going mad and having a great time. And um, he was like, eventually, we just kind of had to sit them down and be like, do you just want to get drunk and have sex with each other? Or do you want to learn how to be an actor? Because like COVID is ruining everything at the moment. But like, if you don't <laughs> behave yourself, then like, you're going to fuck it up. And like, that's really, I think the teachers got pushed to a point where they were just like, these rules are shit, but you have to abide by them or we just can't teach you. And it must be mm. like a really crippling position for a teacher to be in to sort of, yeah, that pastoral care of taking the role of a parent and being like, guys, we're going to have to punish you now if you don't start behaving. Cause otherwise like we can't teach you and you can't be here. And it must be a really hard to kind of, know where that line is before it's difficult for everybody i mm. see exactly what you mean and of course it's difficult for them and i think it's difficult it just throws up new difficulties for everyone but i reckon students will always find a way to get drunk and have sex with each other no matter what that's kind of part of the, the deal 
we lost you a bit there for a second. Oh, did you? Can you hear me now? I can hear I was, you. I was just saying how I think students will always find a way to get drunk and have sex with each other, no matter what. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that is You so can true. rely upon the, the student fraternity to, uh, to do so. Even in a pandemic, they'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, no matter what the conditions. You could be in a war zone and they'd still be doing it. As they should, to be fair. I feel like that is a, that is a big part of learning. I think so. And so, so you, you, you're a teacher, you're a teacher and directing, uh, teaching and looking after kind of students and young people and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of your, your growth into that part, um, at what point did you, um, so you came out of training, you came out of Weber Douglas and you continued. Dave, I've lost you. Can you hear me? Cause you've actually, um, put, come out of the recording screen. So if you can hear me, we've been disconnected, and I'm oh. now going to send you a text. I can hear you, though. This is exciting, isn't it? You can't hear me. How strange. Well, um, so I'm just kind of talking now to sort of cover this while I get a message from Adam. It's weird, because I feel like I'm maybe now on the broadcast on my own. And I feel like I'm on the broadcast <laughs> on <of> my own. <laughs> Holding the entire broadcast together as a sort of weird, improvised, one-man show. Um, so oh, I'm, you can hear me. You've just texted me. You. That you can hear me. But I can't hear you, Dave. I can't wow. hear you at all. You've disappeared. Okay. Shall we log off and log back in again? Is that possible? Yeah, you might have to text me your reply. Let's try that. Yes. All right. Okay, I'm we're logging off. All right, we're back in. Um, I think we had some some sound issue there. Yeah, I was very pleased to hear that I didn't have to, you know, keep the whole show alive as a one-man improv show. I was very tempted to text you, actually. Just like, so, carry on. Just like, yeah, just carry We're on. We're live, Adam. Carry help. on. Just carry on. Please, don't yeah. don't have any dead air. No, thank Just you. No, uh, no. keep going until you bore yourself, and then I'll just cut around it. Um, a quick 30 seconds. But, yeah, I don't do... Um, I don't really edit it. So for the people listening, that's going to be like you going, I can't really hear you. And me going, well, I can't really hear you. And then it's just going to skip to me going, well, okay, welcome back. That is part of the experience. At least now everyone knows what happened. And we're all wiser for it. We are. We know. And we can we can just keep doing this all day if it keeps cutting out. That's not yeah. all day. That would, be, that would be very stressful. And the rugby's on today. So, you know, busy man. Um, yeah, but where was, I, where was I skillfully manoeuvring us to? Um so we're kind of talking about improv and teaching. Oh, that's it. I want to talk a bit about Ken Campbell um, mm. and about your kind of experience with him. So for our listeners who don't necessarily know uh, who Ken Campbell is, could you just, if, if you can, he was quite a, an enigmatic man, I found. Uh, but could you give us a sort of rundown of who he was and who, what, yeah, what sure. he meant to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, Ken Campbell was known sort of infamously and notoriously throughout the 70s and uh, sort of 60s and 70s particularly as a kind of enfant terrible of British theatre. He was always called great theatre maverick or eccentric maverick genius. Um, and uh, he was responsible for some pretty groundbreaking theatre projects, including the launch of the Cottesloe Theatre at the National, the Illuminatus Trilogy, which I think ran for about nine hours or something like that. Wow. And then he directed The Warp, Neil Oram's play The Warp, which is the first 24-hour-long play. And so he had this reputation at sort of creating wild, extravagant theatrical experiences. And more than that, he was, he was just a great... Un, he really understood theatre, theatre dynamics, actor-audience relationship, comedy how the whole thing worked. He was, I don't think I've ever met anyone since who had his brain and had his insight. And I met him when I was in my thirties. You remember I was saying a bit earlier how I was kind of wandering around a bit lost because yeah. theater wasn't satisfying me. I was a bit lost and I needed my kind of spiritual awakening and it, and it came from Ken because a friend of mine said, Oh, Ken Campbell's got hold of this squat in archway and um, he's doing classes in eccentric performing every Sunday. Why don't we go? <laughs> and I went, I'm not going to go to some squat in Archway. Like, it's just, just the whole thing. I was so resistant to the whole idea. And my mate said, Adam, it's Ken Campbell. I went, okay, okay. Because I, I was aware of Ken's work. He's, he's known most famously, perhaps, as being Roger, the irritating guest in Faulty Towers, the anniversary episode which is an mm. extraordinary performance he gives on screen in, in a, a hilarious half-hour comedy. 
Um, and so he was this little, well, he was quite a big guy. He's like a troll. And he spoke like this. Everyone, everyone knows Ken does an impression of him, you know, spoke like this. He was also notoriously aggressive towards actors at times and mm. uh, could fly off the handle into rages. And a lot of people would never work with him again. And a lot of people, when I said, oh, you're working with Ken, they kind of rolled their eyes like, how on earth do you cope with that? But I met Ken in the later years, in the last five years of his life. And he'd quit drinking and he was less demonic, although the demons were still there. But mm. I kind of reveled in the demonic energy, to be honest, anyway. And it was quite exciting to, to be around that sometimes. Um, and w anyway, I went to this squat in Archway and within an hour, I realized I was home. It was like, yeah, this is where I want to be. And I went every week. And then when we were thrown out of the squat, I said, I'll find us another space and we'll carry on the work. And then I just started organizing booking space for Ken and whoever wanted to turn up to just try stuff out. And Ken would just come in with a bunch of ideas. And some of them were genius and some of them were utterly insane. Uh, and the first time we met, he, he sort of said, I want to spend some time doing Shakespeare. Like, could you, could you make up Shakespeare, Adam? Do you reckon you could improvise it? And I went, I, I, I don't know, I could try. And he went, yeah, but here's the thing. It's got to be better than the real thing. Because I'm not certain that the real thing's all that good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'll have a go. And then I tried like, it. Yeah, okay, from? you're in. You can do, you can do the show. Wow, is that where um, you sort of developed School of Night? Yes, because we, we did a gig at Shakespeare's Globe, uh, an amazing, wonderful, wild night at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in 2005, I think it was. And um, after that, we carried on with the improv Shakespeare and Ken was getting obsessed with this idea of the School of Night, which was a group of, uh, you know, may or may not have existed as a, as a group of philosophers, thinkers, artists, scientists and spies in Elizabethan England who met in secret, and there is a conspiracy theory that they actually wrote some or all of Shakespeare's plays, and Shakespeare wow. was just the guy who got the credit for it. Yeah. Uh, and so Ken loved this idea. He said, you know, we could be the modern school of night, and basically, if you pay us, we'll go to the royal court, and we'll ask all the writers, if you pay us a little bit of money, we'll write the play for you. If you pay us a lot, we won't tell anyone that we did it. <laughs> did that work? No, I don't think anyone ever took us up on it. But we did We did five gigs at the Royal Court Theatre, which I remember fondly, where we just did madcap stuff. And that's when I started improvising as Harold Pinter, improvising as Sondheim, uh, and whatever else Ken just liked. He said, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's a winner when you do that. Get up and do that. And um, he'd sort of throw this stuff at me and other people in the company too. And a number of the people that I was working with at that time, we kind of... We then said, "Oh, let's go to let's go to Edinburgh next year, two thousand six, and do In Pursuit of Cardinio, which was our attempts over ten nights to see if we could create Shakespeare's lost play Cardinio." Right. And after four nights with Ken, he went, "Nah, I'm bored of it. We've done it." So, like Ken, the show's called In Pursuit of Cardinio. People are coming to see that. Went, "Yeah, well, we've done it. We'll do something else." Uh, so we had to wow. start doing something else, and he kept he was sort of obsessing over this idea of the School of Night. Um, very much a serial enthusiast. He'd get obsessed with something for a year or two and then move on to something else. So he was obsessed with ventriloquism for a while. He was obsessed with Jackie Chan. And um, then he would move on to something else. So we met him in his School of Night phase. And yeah, a group of us formed this group called the School of Night where we go around improvising Shakespeare. And um, it's it's a joyous thing to attempt and to revel in. You know, it's, yeah. To improvise in that kind of language, we improvise in iambic pentameter. We use all the wit and the wordplay, and we try and make it as good as Shakespeare, or as Ken wanted, better. Yeah, I think I've seen School of Night a few times, and it's always very, um, yeah, it's very impressive. The kind of acrobatics of it are, um, yeah, are really, really exciting. And I think the, yeah, that is a kind of as a principle, because I suppose you could kind of just say improvise Shakespeare, and everyone would kind of laugh and be like, oh, well, that's hard. But then I suppose if you're performing it with the philosophy that you're genuinely attempting to make it better, then but hopefully this, you kind of this create was always, something special. Yeah, this was always how I approached improv, which is let's grade up, not down. Because mm. the general consensus about improv, from, particularly from people who didn't understand improv, which was most people, um, was like improv, well, you can do anything because you're making it up, that's good enough. But no, mm. if, if you're making it up, you're, you're asking the audience to pay money for something that you're making up. 
it's got to be better. You've got to grade up. It's got to be as good as it can be. You can't use improv as an excuse for anything. All you're doing is you're shifting the audience's understanding of what the event is. So you're saying, we haven't planned this in advance. We're discovering it at the same time as you. That's really the fundamental philosophy about improv. And so an audience will watch and go, oh, you're discovering it at the same time. That changes my experience of it. But it doesn't mean you can get away with crappy acting or crappy work. The, the work has still got to be of a good quality. It's just that you're using improvisation to create it in the moment rather than going away and writing it. Yeah, that's very true, actually. And I think in all the work that I've done on improv and all the work I've done with you, I've never actually thought about it like that, of just kind of shifting the perspective um, of the audience and, and sort of engaging with that dynamic. Because I think we've always, or what, I, what I've always approached it as a kind of clown show, of just saying you're you're kind of attempting something that is impossible and so the, if you attempt it with with genuine flair genuine style and genuine kind of uh, truthful sort of truthful attack it will either be brilliant or it will be funny and i think um that's what well, it's valiant sort of nothing else it's it's bold yeah it's brave it's dangerous it takes it means that you're taking a risk you're putting yourself in the danger zone it's a circus act it's a high wire act but actually, mm. I don't think we ever do anything that's impossible. I think we do things that look impossible or seem yeah. or you might think are impossible, but they're very possible. It's, it's, it's not that difficult to speak in iambic pentameter. You can train yourself to do it. I think anyone can train themselves to do it. Some people will have a greater aptitude at it than others, but anyone mm. can do it. I think as well, like with those kind of shows, um, I wonder if... So I wonder if improv and School of Night and um, your other shows, Society of Strange and, and to some degree Showstopper as well, and I guess Mischief Movie Night, they occupy quite a, a niche landscape in a way in terms of the arts. And would do you think it's fair to say that Ken tried to carve out a niche or to create things that were niche? No. Or is that just where he went to? No, he just he just did what he was interested in. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't. He didn't really mind who followed him. I always think of Ken like a kind of pirate captain, captain of a pirate ship, and he just he just went, "Who's up for being in the crew?" And you didn't need yeah. any credentials. You just needed to want to be on the ship. That was enough. And if he had you on the ship, he'd say, "Right, who have I got?" And he'd look around, and he'd forge something with you know. He'd give people tasks to do on the ship. But he was the mad pirate captain and he was going off on an adventure on the high seas and I wanted to be on the ship. And I still do, Dave. I miss it so much. I miss being yeah. on Ken's ship. You know, he's, he died 12, 13 years ago and I, was that I miss him all the time. I really do. And I miss his adventurous spirit. And I, and I keep having to remind myself that it's up to me, as it is up to many of us, to keep it alive. I was going to say, yeah, do you feel a, a certain... Um responsibility to kind of build a ship to kind of build a ken's ark if you will i think no i wouldn't want it to be ken's ark and he wouldn't want it either but mm. i think i'm up for being a pirate captain and i i'm always looking for a crew i would say you're, you're pretty uh you're pretty mad pirate captain yeah i've become uh, so i've become yeah so. i think you're um i would say you're my very brief meeting with ken I would say you you have more uh, outward stability than than Ken exhibits. Yeah, and probably more inward instability than Ken as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of terrible irony. But do you think, um, in some way, I don't know. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I was gonna kind of endow mischief actually as your as your sort of crew. But in a way, we're sort of on the ship together. It's less. Um, I think we yeah. were definitely, you know, we were definitely a crew when we were at Lambda together. Mm. Um, and yes, that, that was a time, by virtue of the fact that it was a drama school and I was your teacher there, that I was yeah. the captain of that particular class. But, you know, you guys set sail as well you should, ve as soon as you could. And that's what all students should do and what all artists should do. It's like, let's just go off on an adventure and figure it out for ourselves. Yeah, get kind of stuck in. I remember though, we did. We, we were very pleased when you did um, joined us for Peter Pan. Uh, yes, Pleasance, because I think that that gave us much needed guidance because we were, I think we were sailing bravely headlong into kind of rough sea, um, and actually, 
having. I remember your first improv show up in Edinburgh. You were in. Mm. You you hit some choppy waters. Oh God, yeah. But that's the only way to to learn. Like we've done that. I've done that a thousand times, and just hit choppy waters and go. What am I doing? Yeah, Yeah, and you feel like you sort of. It's weird feeling because you sort of know what you're doing is not great, but you sort of come out and you're like, yeah, yeah, we did it. Yes, that's the thing. We did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of half the battle, and I think. um, But yeah, how have you? In terms of like, sort of working working with us, how does um, this will be like the the kind of final final ten minutes? Bring it round to you and mischief. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you need to mention the book Improv Beyond Rules? Oh yes, we should actually we should, we should probably mention that. And of yeah, course, I'll Showstopper, the improvised musical, which will enjoy its live streams repeatedly. Oh, very good. Yeah, when yeah. are they on? Um, there's one in uh, there's two in March. There's two in a- uh, one in April. Hopefully, two in April. We're not sure yet. Um, <laughs> having pitched it I'm completely <laughs> ill-prepared I think it's the 27th of March but you know you can find out all about it on our website you've just got to check out Showstopper the improvised musical great okay let's hit those last 10 minutes now that this is very good uh, now that I've pitched myself into a corner um, so how do you find um, okay so I've got a few things so first of all actually like how as a, as a kind of director separate from uh, Mischief how do you find how do you manage a cast like you're coming into mischief you've got a cast that already knows each other really well and that has already written this play and has already cast it themselves how is it as a director kind of coming into that well broadly speaking and this is very broad let's say you've got two types of directors you've got the director that has a methodology and comes in and imposes their methodology on the group and then you have the other director which is going to adjust and adapt to what is there and i'm definitely the latter I will adapt and adjust to the group. Um, I, you know, every single show is unique and completely different, and each group of people are different. And, um, you know, even if you're doing the same play, like I've directed *Midsummer Night's Dream*, I think seven times, and every time I do it, it's completely different. It's a different vo- voyage of discovery, and it's a different. Um, journey and I'm working with different people in a different theatre in a different space with a different concept so uh, it's about the alchemy of the people so uh, when I'm working with you lot it's different because you are very often still writing the play or still forging it still creating it as you're trying to get it up into production as well so there's a push-pull between allowing you the maximum creativity that you can all possibly have but also the very realistic demands of, well, we have to tell the production team this because they've got to make it and we've got to get it there in time so you can physically have it. And I think there was never such an example of that being at its maximum um, tension, if you like. And I don't mean unpleasant tension. I mean like the push-pull of it um, in Magic Goes Wrong. Yeah. Because it wasn't just that you could say, oh, let's have this new prop. It's a magic trick, so it needs development time and it needs construction time and the magicians need to work with it. And the tension between the magic and the comedy was a big one in that show and still is. And that's part of its success as well. How those two elements work together and pull against each other is part of the show's success. But it means that when you're creating it, you are in the crucible of white heat. It's, mm. It can be very, very tricky. And so it's just about constantly listening, constantly staying calm, constantly trying to find out where the hard lines are that can't be moved in order for you to actually get what you need and where the soft lines are that can blur and where we can develop stuff. And that's, yeah, that's a tricky that... process on any show. And it's it's intensely tricky on, on some of your shows because you're doing them at such a high level, uh, often at high speed. Um, you know, you, you're very lucky to have such a terrific producer in Kenny Wax who is so... Um, enthused by your processes that he will allow you all to experiment a great deal and he knows that that's part of the reason of your success so he Mm. permits that and allows that where other producers would not allow that you know Um, but of course he has to then take the flack of something that is changing all the time he has to absorb that as well as producer Um, and I think he manages it and balances it extremely well yeah I think we are really lucky with with Kenny and Mark because they they're I mean well Mark is just uh, a wonderful madman. Um, yeah, he's and I know he also. Yeah, he really is the talisman, and he does listen to all of these podcasts, so he is going to be absolutely mortified. That, yeah, sorry, uh, Mark. I know mentioned. you hate being mentioned. 
but he but is important. He, he is brilliant, and he has been mentioned. Um, you have been named, and what's the opposite of shame? Um, um, celebrated. You have been named, but and he celebrated do, I don't think well, he enjoys it. So we should move on. We should, we should. <laughs> much as we love him. Um, and so, yeah, actually, it, with that, um, I guess, I mean, I, I would call it uh, stress because of, we're talking about that tension. But, yeah, within within a show like Magic and as a as a kind of director, how, yeah, how do you handle those changes? You know, because we're in, I know, for example, a lot of our shows, um, the rehearsal stage for a lot of shows feels like we're rehearsing it to a, a point of as near perfection as we can get as where I think for our shows rehearsals feel like it's just this is all theory and actually the real work begins when we open the show and it's previews because we're going the audience are kind of the best directors because they're going to tell us what's funny and tell us what doesn't work but then also for you we're coming to you after day one or two and going right here's a huge rewrite we need to retech this we're going to cut this we're going to change this we're going to add this in and actually, yeah, how do you cope with that as a director? Is there a part of you that's like excited by that or a part that's you're just trying to manage expectations? I, it, the, the pressures come from the limitations of space and time. You know, you've only got so many hours you can be in the theatre. Mm. There are only so many hours you can call upon people in terms of their contracts. And everyone plays with really good faith to make it work. But at the same time, there are only so many hours in the day. So it's, I've always felt it was like a triage system where you look at what is most important, make those changes first. And, you know, it's frustrating because inevitably there's more changes and development that wants to be done than there is time in which to do it. And it's horrible to have to say, no, we can't do that right now because we want, we want you to have everything that you want to have. But yeah. sometimes it's just not possible. And you go, right, that has to wait till later. It has to wait till later. And sometimes you don't get to later because you know, with magic, we went into a very, very tough schedule straight away over Christmas. So there wasn't time uh, to go and make some of the smaller changes that we wanted to make. So it was like, okay, let's make the big changes. And then the rest you're going to learn as you do it. The rest you can adapt and change as you do it. Obviously, you're not going to make massive script changes without them being rehearsed in. But Mm. there are certain changes that you can make and certain, really in terms of your audience actor dynamic. Yeah, and I wonder, like, actually with us, because I've been talking to a few people who have kind of joined mischief um as you know actors outside coming in and i think there are certain small things that people like myself and other guys in mischief and kind of original crew certainly feel like we have the authority to make those kind of choices um and then come to you and say oh are you watching tonight by the way i'm just going to try this this and this just let me know what you think and then afterwards you go yep that's great keep it go back to what you had or do that and actually you kind of have I wonder if there's a a joy in that of going okay great the the actors are kind of self-managing those smaller things that you don't necessarily have time to like dedicate to rehearsal or is it actually quite frustrating where it's like you've got these bunch of individuals who are who are just kind of manipulating and changing things as they see fit no I think you know as we always you know, because we love the work you do, and I say we, I mean generally, I, I think I'm speaking on behalf of a creative team who are working for you. We always want you to have what you want, and we love seeing you happy with the work that you're doing. Mm. So it's always going to be frustrating if we feel that you're you're not getting to what it is you want to change. And we're, we're always just trying our best to get there. That's where the frustration is. Um, the mm. joy, yeah, the joy, I think, is seeing you discover in the moment, live, what it is that you really want to do. That's thrilling because that's where it should live. That's what yeah. theatre is meant to be about, is that live connection between the artists and the audience, the performers and the audience, and celebrating the audience and making them feel like it made a difference they were there that night or that matinee. Yeah. And here we are talking in the pandemic where we are craving that dynamic. We're craving to get back out to the theatres and audiences are craving it too and oh what a glorious day it will be hopefully soon when we can all share that again because that's what it's all about so seeing you revel in that has always been my thrill yeah and uh yeah you've made me kind of really miss theatre now not that it wasn't before but like, yeah. yeah now i'm just like oh yeah i just want to get back yeah i mean actors are notorious at complaining about things i hope that it will end a culture of complaint that that does not befit them 
no, no, we'll we'll just immediately get a job and then be like, oh. Yeah, I wonder how soon it'll be before people <laughs> moan about stuff again. Ah, oh, we've gone over by five minutes. Oh, my yeah. sandwich is like soggy. Ah, oh, the tea's gone cold. Like we'll be moaning about stuff. We do, we do love it. Um, I think this is a good place to bring us to a close. But before we do, um, I should put my book, shouldn't I? I don't exactly. think I mentioned it. Improv Beyond Rules, practical handbook. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called. Practical Guide to Narrative Improvisation, Nick Hearn Books, and Showstopper the Improvised Musical. Very good. And you'll you'll be live streaming, but you know you can. Um, do, what's your Twitter? Can you kind of get all the information on that? You just go. Uh, the website will have absolutely everything that you need. The showstoppers.org. Oh, I think I've done the old website address. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing half the time, Dave. I think if you you should have learned that by by this interview. Just Google Showstopper. Improvised yeah, Musical. Showstopper the Improvised Musical. It's so easy to find. And just get on yeah, the and you'll be fine. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Oh, it's nice to talk to you, Dave. Thank you. Is so that your much. phone? The, what perfect timing? No, not my phone at all. It must be your phone or oh. a phantom phone. Hold on, let me see. Is that mine? Oh, it's not mine. Oh yeah, it is in my flat. Yeah. That's really exciting. Well, I better go and get that. Um, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. And, Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, keep making mischief. Just someone saying hello. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.